everyone. My name is Sherry Rice, and I'm CEO of Access to Healthcare Network. Welcome to our podcast, Access to Health. Our goal is to bring you informative speakers from the healthcare industry to give you information that can help you make your healthcare decisions. Today, we are talking about genetic testing. And my guest is Dr. Nathan Slotnick. Dr. Slotnick is a perinatologist at Perinatal and Associates of Northern Nevada and medical geneticist at Cancer Genetic Risk Assessment. Welcome, Dr. Slotnick. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's absolutely fabulous to have you here to talk about a topic that certainly we see all over the Internet. We see it in the news. We, Everyone, there's this craze on DNA testing. I've certainly had done mine through Ancestry.com. Sure, absolutely. It's, um, it's changed the landscape in so many different ways. Um, from a pure medical perspective to just genetic entertainment. Um, much of what's being marketed now is is in the entertainment uh, mode and has, frankly, very little in the way of real clinical application. Now, I anticipate that that's going to change. And as we learn more about how issues with uh, uh, certain genes and their manifestations, if mutated, becomes better known, we'll get a better sense of that. But the companies that are now currently marketing everywhere are there not for the benefit of the uh, patient, if you will. They're there, just like every other company, to make money. So the motivation for those companies has to be held in uh, some question and uh, need to understand precisely what it is that they're promising, what it is they're doing, and how misinformation can get spread through the whole, con- uh, uh, the whole process. Well, let me ask you about some of the more common ones. I know Ancestry.com tells you where your ancestors came from. But 23andMe is supposed to tell you some markers for your health. How would someone use that, and is that a positive thing? My recommendation for 23 well, I'm, I'm not going to mention the name of the company because I think that that really doesn't lend itself to uh, critical analysis. But for the, those uh, companies that provide that kind of entertainment, don't use it as clinical information. It's misunderstood. The kinds of work that are being done right now in terms of true sequencing analysis in some centers are not being done, as, but are being marketed as they are. So there's a great deal of misunderstanding and misinformation out there. There is a company that I won't mention who does look at, not through pure genetic DNA sequencing, but by sequence nucleotide polymorphisms, also known as SNPs, is looking at changes in genes associated with cancer risk, in particular the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes. Those SNPs are not sequenced, and what they're marketing as is that you're having your BRCA test being done. If it comes back negative, you're in the clear. Patients misunderstand it. Patients don't understand that it's not full sequencing that they're being uh, provided with. And they come to my office saying, I had 23, I had testing done, (laughs) and the testing told me I don't have hereditary cancer risk. That is pure hogwash. That is so sad. As a matter of fact, the SNPs that are being promoted as being BRCA1 and BRCA2 are actually three relatively rare 
changes that are found almost exclusively in the Ashkenazic Jewish population. So, like I said, misinformation is being provided to misinformed, and it's being misunderstood. Well, that's fascinating because somebody who does one of the tests that includes your DNA and and any sort of hereditary issues, health issues you may have, is doing it in hopes of easing their anxiety. They're not. They shouldn't. And they, uh, that, the reason is that they're being misinformed. They're told one thing, and they're actually being provided with something else. The real value, the real value to the company that is doing this test isn't in the people signing up or paying a few dollars to have the testing done. The value is in the storage of the huge amount of data that is provided when DNA analysis is being done. Those companies go out to companies like Pepsi or Coke and say, this category of people seems to really like your product. That's who you should market to. These are companies that are designed to make money, not to provide health care options. Well, that's fascinating. Let's talk about medical genetics because that really is the field that you're in. And how has that changed over the last decade or two? And where are we going with it? Well, let me count the ways. Let me begin with a a piece of misinformation, which I think I provided you before. I, um, as we all are getting older, and as my obstetric practice uh, was very demanding, and as I decided to have um, more sleep in my life, getting up two in the morning gets old, I have cut back dramatically on my high-risk obstetric practice. I still see patients for high-risk obstetrics. I still do ultrasounds. But right now, I'm no longer affiliated with the, uh, uh, the facility that you had mentioned at the top. I'm not doing a lot of obstetric uh, uh, practice. I'm still doing a lot of obstetric genetics and prenatal diagnosis. So I want to clarify that from the beginning. Thank you so much. Medical genetics has been around for well over 100 years. The first description of a a genetic disease uh, came about about 1903, 1904, when uh, a group of uh, clinicians in in Britain uh, described a condition called alcaptonuria, which is a um, genetic disease including the urination of a particular uh, compound, which can be measured quite easily in urine. And they found that this particular condition, which did have kidney manifestations, could be passed in a particular genetic way from parent to child. So it's been around for a long time. Now, remember that 100 years ago, we had no idea of what the genetic material was all about. Um, the, uh, the description of DNA as a hereditary material really didn't come about until the, uh, the 1950s. At the, after that, things rather exploded. When I first got into even thinking about genetics as a career, um, we didn't even know how many chromosomes were in the, uh, in the uh, human cell. It was somewhere between 46 and 48. We weren't really that sure. But the changes and the, uh, the evolution of the technology has been dramatic. Medical genetics as a discipline came about with uh, the leadership of a, a small number of very, very bright people, who many of whom became my mentors. Um, they were asked to provide a genetic input in particular familial situations. Uh, for example, back in the 70s and 80s, 
1970s and 1980s, the, uh, the practice of medical genetics was largely a descriptive discipline practiced by pediatricians. They were asked to see kids. They were asked to go to the neonatal intensive care units and evaluate children born with particular physical findings. All they could do at the time was to try to make a diagnosis, try to provide the family with what a prognosis for that child would be, and then try to give the family some information about what recurrence risks for this particular condition might be. Okay, That was it. That was it. Um, The reason I chose not to go into pediatrics was just as I was completing my training, obstetrics as a genetic discipline became much more available. Prenatal diagnosis using ultrasound, prenatal diagnosis using amniocentesis or chorionic villus sampling as a diagnostic procedure became much more available, and I elected to go into obstetrics and gynecology as a discipline in order to practice genetics. But it was always genetics from the beginning. Now, as that field matured, it became pretty obvious technologically that genetics touches every discipline. There's not an area of medicine that doesn't have a medical genetics uh, effect. And uh, although pediatrics and obstetrics were the initial areas of practice, things like adult health, hypercholesterolemia for adults, diabetes as a genetic disease, cancer, which I'm spending a huge amount of time for right now, um, uh, became much more uh, doable as a genetic practice. Pediatric genetics, metabolic disease, dysmorphology, the kinds of things that you can uh, 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 test for became better as well. Now, coupling that with the recent, and I last 10 years, changes and developments in sequencing of DNA and the ability to do it not only accurately, but to do it inexpensively has become much, much uh, has had a huge effect. 20, uh, 20 years ago, at the end of the Human Genome Project, the first human genome sequencing data came out. It cost roughly uh, hundreds of millions of dollars to do a single human genome. I fully anticipate that I, in the next five years, I should be able to order a whole genome on an individual for less than $1,000. That's absolutely amazing. And on top of that, the accuracy of that information is much more profound as well. Single gene studies are now done routinely, and there are whole other areas of technologic development that are um, both breathtaking, exciting, and from my perspective, a little depressing. I'm kind of nearing the end of my practice. I wish I was 30 years younger so I could see where things are going to be in 30 years. I don't know. But I can tell you that the areas that I'm practicing right now are going to change dramatically. They're going to uh, influence diagnosis and management of conditions that will reflect the personal genetics of the patient, not just general genetics, but the personal genetics. Cancer therapies will reflect um, the the personal uh, genetics of the patient and the tumor genetics as well. So let's let's get a little deeper into that one. As we say, in the next five years, ten years, next decade, things will continue. The momentum will continue, and that uh, medical genetic testing will be more available to everyone. Yes, absolutely. And how will that? 
How will that translate into going to your family practice doc? <coughs> well, there, there are both pros and cons. Um, let me give you an example from the cancer uh, area that I'm practicing right now and how cancer technology, cancer DNA technology, can be applied to other areas in general. And then we can come back to the, the general practitioner. Um, about four or five years ago, I uh, was made aware of a patient who, a young woman, who had been diagnosed with a particular um, aggressive form of breast cancer. Uh, the cancer therapy began, but after surgery, her, her options became rather limited. Um, as a way to provide more information, the clinicians, and this is in Ohio, the clinicians elected to take a sample of the DNA of the tumor, not the germline, not the, uh, the other tissue, but the tumor itself, and to look at the sequence of 315 separate genes associated with cancer within that tumor. As it turns out, a change was found in a particular gene. The gene was one of the genes that we know to be associated with inherited predisposition to cancer. The woman's uh, therapy changed, and uh, she is now alive because of that. But more important, almost more importantly, I guess, the, uh, uh, the finding prompted the clinicians in Ohio, at my suggestion, <coughs> excuse me, to do... Uh, a pedigree, a family analysis, and DNA testing for family members. Six family members were found to be at risk, and an early cancer was diagnosed on the basis of a technology which 10 years ago didn't exist. Now, the diagnosis, the therapy, and the specifics in this particular family were all touched by um, uh, two particular disciplines coming together. Now, as you had mentioned, uh, the ability of a clinician to provide that kind of genetic information to uh, patients or for patients just to get it themselves is going to become much more valu valuable in a clinical realm and is going to be marketed as a direct-to-consumer marketing pro uh, process for genetics, too. The problem is you, as I, as we began our conversation, you don't know precisely what it is you're getting. And many of the companies are a bit reluctant to discuss the limitations of what it is that they're doing. The same holds true for clinicians to order this. Most clinicians are you know, wonderfully well-intended, but if a clinician who's been out for 10 years uh, in practice decides to get into genetic testing, um, if they haven't taken a genetics course in the last 20 minutes, they're way behind. This area changes so dramatically, so rapidly. And most clinicians took a genetics course in medical school and think they know genetics. Unfortunately, that's really not true. When you look at genetics medicine, genetic medicine as a discipline, you need to think of it as a, um, a series of options, a series of choices, and each of the choices and each of the options has risks of misinformation, doing it wrong, just plain doing it wrong. There are companies that are misrepresenting what they do, and uh, clinicians, well-intended clinicians, don't have the ability to identify which those, what those companies are. So 
say that somebody wants genetic testing because they're looking at down the road to have a child and they have read a few articles or they know of someone that received genetic testing is that something that you think that someone who doesn't have a chronic disease in their family doesn't have something that uh, would characterize as having a possibility of abnormal genetic testing would you say that would be their right to have genetic medical genetic testing we're already doing that we're we are that. oh yeah that. and we've done it for years um, every time I interact with a patient um, there are many different uh, discussions that I have let's say I'm looking at a patient who is pregnant she's 35 years old well I automatically know that as a woman gets a little older the risk of a chromosome number problem in pregnancy goes up if I talk to the patient and the patient is of Jewish extraction, I know that certain ethnic groups have uh, increased risk for certain conditions, diseases. I know that Jews are at risk for things like Tay-Sachs disease. I know that uh, Asians are at risk for some of the hemoglobinopathies, the diseases of hemoglobin. I know that um, uh, certain areas of the world have certain genetic conditions more frequently found. Um, the kinds of pre-pregnancy risk assessment tools that we have have grown. And the, uh, the recommendation currently for every pregnant couple is that they have what we call um, uh, pre-pregnancy risk assessment done. There are 250 to 300 different genes that if you carry one of which, you're perfectly healthy. But if your partner has a mutation in the same gene, there's a one in four chance of having a child with a particular condition. Examples of those conditions include Tay-Sachs disease, include things like cystic fibrosis, and other conditions that have a genetic component. Now, on top of that, we have other ways of manipulating as, as well. Um, let's say I find a patient who has a mutation in a gene predisposing to cancer, say a BRCA mutation. I know what that gene is. I know what it does. I know the particular mutation that that particular patient has, and I can help that patient maintain good health by providing access to uh, risk-reducing procedures, chemo prevention, things like that. But if, what if this is a 25-year-old woman and she wants to have a family? She knows that she has a 50-50 chance of passing her mutation on to her children. She can go to an IVF center and using tools including pre-implantation genetic diagnostic tools can have the ability to prevent her passage of her mutation to her children. That is cut off the inheritance of that BRCA mutation. To do it routinely, and we're doing this routinely now, for many, many, many different conditions. Uh, I'm working with a local infertility specialist, and we've done this now many, many different times. That kind of pre-implantation genetic in vitro fertilization uh, technology is routinely applied er virtually everywhere in the country. What I'm hearing is that the, the medical genetic testing is the first step. After that, it, it sounds like there are numerous conversations to have. 
It depends. Numerous. It depends on what you what you look for. It depends on what you find. Depends on the particular gene and the mutation. Depends on uh, the patient's wishes. Does the patient really want to pursue this as a diagnostic tool, or is this just something that is of interest but not something they'd like to get into more aggressively? It's it is and should always be the patient's decision about how aggressive genetic testing, genetic medicine should be applied. Well, and and your job then is to bring all that information to the patient because information is power and power and choices sure. and the choices that they make. Absolutely. Uh, but it isn't. It sounds like it's not a black and white issue. N- nothing is black and white. Right. There are just many different shades of gray. Um, I have always been impressed with, uh, first of all, the ability of most patients to really understand potentially some difficult biologic concepts and really get it. In many ways, that makes me uh, makes my life a lot easier by allowing uh, by reassuring myself that the patient's understanding really is rather profound. Secondly, um, there should never be coercion as part of a genetic risk assessment or counseling process. One can I can no more decide for a patient what that patient should do than I could have somebody tell me what to do. So the whole concept of non-directive counseling has to be a crucial linchpin in the care of a patient that is a genetic, uh, medical genetic patient. And when, since Access to Healthcare Network takes care of quite a few people who are uninsured, mm-hmm. quite a few low-income people, are you seeing that across-the-board genetic testing is available to, to all income levels? Are we seeing that it's mostly for people with a high-end insurance? What, what are we looking at? Well, again, it depends on what conditions we're talking about. But let's just look at cancer for, for the time being. Um, over the last seven or eight years, there's been an evolution from single-gene testing for cancer risk to what we call multi-gene panels of genes, reflecting the change in technology where we can look at 30, 40, 50 different genes and be able to get a more comprehensive piece of information for patients about hereditary cancer risk. When I first got into this field 25 years ago, there were two genes you could look at. It took 10 weeks to get results. It costs $10,000 sometimes. Uh, nowadays, uh, I can look at 30, 40, 50 different genes in two and a half weeks, and out-of-pocket expense for the last 270 patients that I've seen has averaged less than $40 for the wow. patient. This reflects all those changes. It's not $300 million to do a whole genome. It's looking at 30 or 40 genes, and the out-of-pocket for patient is less than 40 Underwriters are more or less receptive, but um, once I explain to them the importance of this particular test and how the criteria that are being that are suggested for particular forms of genetic disease are being met by this test, they're a little more um, flexible. But most of the decisions that are being made by underwriters are being made by clinicians that have no idea of what we're talking about. Right. You have an orthopedic surgeon, great guy, wonderful guy, hasn't had genetics course in 40 years, and he's deciding whether this particular patient needs to have a genetic test done or what the implications of that would be. Right, which goes back to our family practice because so many family practice is the gatekeeper. Absolutely. And uh, with that, 
model that we have in our society, then the family practice doc is the one who who would push somebody forward to get testing. That's true, too. But there are non... Uh, there, there's a very simple technology that uh, most practitioners can use. I have a 10-question a question questionnaire looking for hereditary cancer risk that somebody can do in their office. You can build it into an electronic medical record. If the electronic medical record um, indicates the uh, patient really does have a significant risk, if the questionnaire comes back as positive, well, then, yeah, let's talk about it. Most patients really don't need that kind of uh, attention, but some do. Let's not, uh, uh, let's not ignore the importance for particular patients by assuming that the test is simply too expensive and non-informative. Can someone take that questionnaire and not go through their physician? Is there a place where they can get it, take it, and then say to their physician, I took this questionnaire? Yeah, actually, the uh, questionnaire is now on the website at the uh, facility where I'm now working, and anybody can, should be able to get an access. I haven't tried. I put it on the I put it on the uh, the website, but I don't know that. I've never tried to get into Can it. Can you tell us the website? Well, it's the uh, Renowned Health Network, and I'm pretty sure that you should be able to find it. If not, just give me a call. I, I can have it I can have it sent out or email it out, too. Okay. At the That's end of the easy. podcast, we'll get all that information sure. for people. So if somebody has cancer in their family, yes, um, mother, father, sister, brother, would you suggest that they get genetic testing? It... Uh, the, the the answer to your question is uh, changing. Um, there are certain recommendations that are made by the National Cancer, Comprehensive Cancer Network that suggest that uh, there are certain criteria that should be met before genetic molecular genetic testing is done. But those standards have been have changed dramatically over the last few years, and with the cost of the testing. Uh, being so inexpensive, um, the risks the risks have um, not borne out. That is, it it seems to me that virtually everyone, whether they have whether they have a family history or not, should at least have the kinds of testing. And if I can offer the test for ninety nine bucks, uh, why not? Why not? Um, the criteria for a family with genetics are relatively straightforward. Depends on the cancer. Depends on the age of diagnosis. It depends on the specifics having to do with the family tree. Hereditary cancer predisposition generally runs in one side of the family or the other. Generally, is found in um, younger individuals rather than older. Generally, has to do more with associations with specific types of cancers, like breast and ovary and pancreas, kind of run together. Um, and uh, those are the kinds of things that us genetic professionals kind of kind of look at. There are also those ethnic associations too. So that's uh, that's, that's important. I can't remember whether we had talked about this, but uh, for example, the BRCA one and two genes that we had touched on before. If you just randomly sample somebody on the streets here in Nevada, you'll find that about three to four out of a thousand will have a mutation in either BRCA1 or BRCA2 that is clinically significant. But if you look at the Jewish population, it's not 3 to 4 in 1,000, it's 2 to 3 in 100. 
So in many respects, that factors in to patients' decision-making and clinicians' decision-making about whether testing should be performed. Well, let me get to a couple of pretty simplistic things for, for someone such as myself who's a layperson with this. Um, how do the diseases that we get relate to our DNA? For instance, if we take type 1 diabetes and type 2, type 1 diabetes, would that be something that genetically then uh, we would get from family, but type 2 diabetes would be based on lifestyle? In a general sense, that's true. But the, uh, the genetics of diabetes is, is pretty complex. Um, we know that there are certain conditions. It's one of the relatively, relatively rare, not that rare, forms of diabetes called mature onset diabetes of the young, or MODY, has a very strict genetic association, and there are very well understood genes associated with that diagnosis. Um, other diagnoses of um, type 1 diabetes can have a genetic component, but it's still a little bit um, early to try to tease that out. Uh, type 2 diabetes does appear to be lifestyle, but there are some genetic components there too. We know that autism, learning disability, um, manic depressive illness, unipolar depression, we know that uh, substance abuse, um, those kinds of things have genetic tools or keys associated with them. Our discussion, if we have this discussion five years from now, will reflect our increasing understanding. But right now, there's no specific testing that I can provide for a family interested in autism, learning disability, and even diabetes, that kind of stuff. On the other hand, there are other things that I can do. There are other things that will give uh, very useful information to patients and families, too. So what determines what we inherit from our mother and father? <laughs> Let's do a little course in basic genetics yeah. here. Um, we are what we are because of what we inherit from our parents. Our parents give us the instructions that tell the cells of our body what to do. Those instructions tell brain cells to become brain cells and liver cells to become liver cells. The instructions are called genes. The genes are made of a chemical called DNA. And the DNA in the cells of our body are packaged, the DNA is packaged in the nucleus as chromosomes. There are 46 chromosomes in each of the cells of our body. 23 come from our father, 23 come from our mother. If the father contributes 22 chromosomes plus an X, will be a girl. If the father contributes 22 chromosomes plus a Y, will be a boy. The DNA that's packaged in the chromosome from a single cell codes for 30 to 50,000 different genes. Uh, very complex, and not just the genes themselves, but how they interact with each other. If you were to take the DNA from a single cell and stretch it out, you'll find that it is about two meters in length from one cell. And there are 30 trillion cells in the adult body, 30 trillion cells. Um, the amount of DNA in a single human um, is phenomenal. It goes back and forth from the, the Earth to the moon dozens and dozens and dozens of times. Uh, so there's a huge amount of DNA. Now, if the 30 trillion cells uh, come from a single fertilized egg, and they do, it's a little hard to get your brain around how many cell divisions it takes to go from 1 to 30 trillion. It's a big number. And different tissues in our body will reflect different numbers of divisions. Uh, things like uh, areas of the body like marrow, bone marrow, 
the blood forming part of our body, the um, the inside inside lining of our our colon uh, grows and divides rapidly. Germline cells and nerve cells divide much less rapidly, so the changes are less likely to occur. So. If you divide and you look at those many, many, many divisions from 1 to 30 trillion and think about how much DNA needs to get copied at each division, it's huge. There are 3 billion uh, bases of DNA that need to get copied at every cell division. We like to think that the copying mechanism for cell division DNA replication is perfect, but it is not. And our current estimate is that there are well over 100,000 errors in DNA replication that occurs every time a cell divides. Now, in a teleologic sense, cells don't like their DNA to change. As a matter of fact, there's a huge amount of evolutionary pressure to keep your DNA as pristine and, and uh, unchanged as possible. So cells have, over evolutionary time, developed a long list of different mechanisms specifically designed to identify those errors and to fix them, okay? And they do a pretty good job. But if you inherit from your family a mutation in a gene that prevents the cell from making those repairs, well, changes of errors will happen, errors will accumulate, and cancers will occur. So our concept of cancer as a genetic disease comes out of our understanding that DNA errors that are intrinsic to cell division are not being repaired. If they don't get repaired, the cancers are more likely to occur, depending on where the errors are. Um, so in a, in a very real sense, although cancer is a genetic disease because it, I, it occurs as a result of change in DNA, cancer doesn't have to be a hereditary disease. The other thing is when we look for hereditary cancer predisposition, we're not looking for genes who, which, when mutated, cause cancer. We're looking for genes which, when mutated, prevent the cell from repairing the naturally occurring DNA errors that happen when cells divide. So it, it becomes a very productive way to think about how cancers occur. Thank you for Excuse that. Me. <coughs> Excuse me. Thank you for that pretty basic tutorial. But so many of us, uh, especially myself, haven't been in a biology class for years, and we're not in the field. But it sounds like cancer is one of the areas where medical genetic testing is going to do the most good. That we're going to see the changes over the next decade. Yeah, I. I couldn't agree with you more. It's going to be, you know, genetic technology and genomic technology is going to touch every discipline. But in a very real sense, as I indicated when we talked about that patient in Ohio that had a mutation in a particular gene, it's not just the genetics that you inherit. It's the changes that occur in the DNA as cells divide that will provide clinicians with the ability to choose therapies that are going to be specific for the tumor and specific for the patient. The, remember, we're talking about not just germline or inherited DNA changes. We're also talking about somatic or tumor-specific DNA changes. So the answer is, yeah, absolutely. Everything is going to change. 
And what what are the moral and ethical issues that you see now or in the future around uh, medical genetics testing? Um, I've touched on one already, which is, um, unfortunately, the nature of how med- medicine is practiced in this country, which is, um, although it shouldn't be the case that profit is made off of somebody's illness, it is, and that is, it would be naive to assume otherwise. Um, unfortunately, there can be um, misunderstandings and misrepresentations of what the technology can do. That, to me, is the biggest immediate issue, uh, misunderstanding, misrepresentation, misinformation. Um, as far as the ethical changes, uh, the ethical changes associated with DNA technology, it's not hard to predict that in the not-too-distant future, changes will occur in our ability to provide therapies that may have long-term germ, germline consequences. I've already hinted at my ability to provide a young woman with the mutation in, say, a BRCA gene, the ability not to pass that mutation on to their children. That's a, um, I think, a wonderful ability to provide that young woman with the reassurance that she doesn't have to have a 50-50 chance a priori for passing that mutation on. So we're, ta- we're, changing, we're talking about changing uh, mutation frequencies in populations. Um, it's not also hard to sort of look at the next step, which will be uh, encouraging the uh, employment of certain genetic testing, genomic changes, and genetic-specific gene changes to try to enhance intelligence or um, physical beauty or uh, uh, athletic ability. Those kinds of things wouldn't really be that hard to do. I don't see there being um, uh, a reason to do it. And I think that those kinds of germline changes need to be very, very carefully considered. We know that, um, for example, the, uh, the publicity that a Chinese researcher got not too, dis- not too long ago about um, repairing a specific gene in an embryo, germline changes, um, was roundly criticized. But uh, it's, it's sort of human nature that if something can be done, it probably will be done, whether it's correct or not. I'd like to suggest that we take a step back and think through the implications of the technology on us uh, as a population, I guess, as a human population. Well, I'm 70 years old, and I know in my lifetime, I've seen enormous medical changes. And the wrestling on the the moral dilemma of many of them in vitro fertilization, surrogacy. Uh, And I would assume that medical genetic testing will also take on that issue of us having to explore the morality of it. And there will be a lot of opinions on that, as there always are. You gave me a sentence and said, what is genetic discrimination? What is genetic discrimination? Well, that's really that's an interesting question. Um, it became pretty obvious about 20 years ago that uh, it is uh, not outside the realm of comprehension that 
um, an employer might look at a genetic disease as making an individual unemployable. An insurance underwriter, a health insurance underwriter, might look at a family history of a genetic disease as making that patient un, uh, uninsurable. Um, life insurance, I mean, you can think of many different areas here. So about uh, 2004, 2005, I was asked to um, be one of many geneticists involved in constructing a law that took, took effect in 2007. It's called the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act. It was a national law uh, prohibiting discrimination for employment or health insurance on the basis of genetic information, genetic uh, disease, uh, whatever, that was signed into law, well, 12 years ago now. Um, the, the, the law itself was well-intended. It was pretty good, but it did not address issues having to do with life insurance, unemployment insurance, you know, things, things like that. It should have been, but it wasn't. Now, 12 years in genetic medicine, genomic medicine, it might as well be a million years, and the technology is so much different now than it was just 12 years ago. So I've been in touch with um, uh, our U.S. senators from the state to encourage them to re-examine the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act of 2007 and bring it up to date. It wouldn't be terribly hard to do, but because the technology has changed and because the practice of genetic medicine has bloomed in the last 12 years, it's, it, it, it's a real necessity to do that. The and law, bringing it up to date, what would be the changes and how it's worded? Well, it would depend. First of all, I'd like to include the things that were not, um, not included in the law back in 2007. But more importantly, the, the ability to provide um, sequencing inexpensively uh, across large populations was just uh, pie in the sky you know, 12 years ago. Now it's routinely done across the board. The ability to look at the kinds of genetic testing in cancer that we talked about didn't even exist five years ago. You know, 12 years ago, it was it was unheard of. So those kinds of clinical applications of the technology need to be factored into the law to help prevent discrimination from from occurring. Um, and I think the the issues the other issues having to do with how genetic uh, medicine is uh, affects populations uh, in school in education. I'd like to build into uh, the gene law, if it's redone, um, issues that could apply to education for students, um, basic background information about um, how cells work, how DNA works, how we are what we are because of what we inherit, all those kinds of things, and make it an educational as well as a non-discrimination tool. Are we finding that more and more uh, young people want to go into this field and are more and more medical students gearing themselves into medical genetics? Well, yeah. Um, there are so many different options that are available now that didn't ex exist when I was in training. Um, but I do have to say Nevada is um, could do better. Um, there is, at our medical school here in Reno, no medical genetics department. Okay, there should be. Particularly if you anticipate that 
genetic medicine will have such a large footprint in how medicine's practiced 20 years from now. The education for un- medical students is lacking. The education for undergraduate students is generally lacking as well. Genetic medicine is practiced not just by medical geneticists, but by genetic counselors. Genetic counselors are masters trained uh, genetic specialists who provide, honestly, something I don't, which is a little bit of a different perspective on families and health, uh, both psychosocial support uh, and, um, and mentoring that, that is a wonderful tool to have. Uh, there are, are a small number of genetic counseling schools across the country. Um, over the last t- 12 or 15 years, there have been many students, undergraduate students at UNR, who come to me and said, I'd like a career in genetics. I'd like to go in genetic counseling. I have had to send each of them somewhere else, New York, Massachusetts, Arkansas, and they don't come back. They don't come back. And that's a shame. And what would we need to do to get that training here? Get a master's program set up in uh, in, on, in the undergraduate school. It would be wonderful to put it into the School of Public Health. Um, Dr. Trudy Larson, who's the chairman of that department, is, an, is a dear friend of mine. And I've, she's so busy. But I've, I said, you know, this would be a wonderful opportunity, putting together a master's program, have two to three, four graduates of the program each year, and have, at, if only one of them stays, that's great. That's wonderful. It's 100% more than we have right now. So the ability to provide the educational opportunities, professional opportunities, career uh, management, and a resource for the general population to go to uh, to get more genetic information uh, after I retire. My wife won't let me retire. <laughs> so, so in the last few minutes that we have, Dr. Slotnick, mm-hmm. What, what else would you like people who listen to this podcast to know? And then I'd love to have you back for, for another conversation at another time, uh, maybe with some different uh, nuances to it. But this has been absolutely marvelous. So what, well, what more you. would you like them to know? Oh, gosh. I, I, I think there, there are two or three different subjects, I guess. First of all, I'd like the the listener to this podcast to recognize that genetic medicine, genomic medicine, the technology will all have an effect not just on our own health, but on the health of our families and our, our neighbors. That's number one. Number two, the complexity of genetic medicine will increase as the technology advances. It's not simple Mendelian genetics anymore. We're talking about many, many different tools, wonderfully powerful, um, which I enthusiastically support the development. But don't assume that the person that is giving you information about um, genetic medicine or genomic medicine has your benefit at heart. That's number one. Number three, I, I think... Uh, I'd like to encourage more education for the general population about the tech, the techniques and technology in genetics. It's not hard to uh, to appreciate that an informed popu- population will have a much better and more meaningful impact on how medicine is practiced 
if that that population becomes smarter, I guess. Thank you, Dr. Slotnick. Today we've been discussing genetic testing with Dr. Nathan Slotnick, and we appreciate you listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. And for a list of future podcasts, go to accesstohealthcare.org slash podcast. Again, Dr. Slotnick, thank you for being on here. And thank you for having me.